Hey everybody in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us. Then I'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer, and we'll go deep into their childhood lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we'll get a little spooky and we'll learn something about the cryptids and the supernatural. I think you have a part two for this week, right? I do. Ah. Before we get started, though, I just want to let everybody know that our Patreon is live. And hey, we got two new subscribers this week. You can join them and become part of our When Killers Get Caught family. I don't know. We haven't come up with a cool name yet, but we're going to get there. Yeah, our cool There are four tiers from $5 to $50. (laughs) It's all exclusive VIP content that you can't get anywhere else. You can support us by going to patreon.com slash when killers get caught. Or if you're the kind of person who just likes to buy a cool shirt, you can find it on www.whenkillersgetcaught.com. And this week in true crime, I would like to talk about some things that have popped up with Jelani Day. For people who don't know, uh, Jelani Day went missing roughly a month or less than a month before Gabri Petito. Um, He was going to school to be a doctor and his family was really like, it's great that Gabby Petito has gotten all this, you know, shine. Yeah. And it's it's understandable because she was an influencer. And when you have fans, people care about you. And that's really messed up. But when you create these little communities like this, they do rabidly care for you. Mm-hmm. So people were concerned when she stopped posting online and she just friggin disappeared. But Jelani's mom was relentless. She was constantly talking to people about this and so now that they've discussed his body i'm gonna read the the article says family of jelani day seek scientific explanation for his severely decomposed body missing eyeballs liver and brain jawbone sawed off well they found his body in the it was in a river yeah okay so i can reasonably say there's a scientific explanation for the eyeballs gone Mm -hmm. fish absolutely eat those oh yeah definitely but if if his body was maintained it would be confusing as to why liver and brains were gone Mm -hmm. and i'm like was the severing of the jawbone part of the autopsy i'm not sure but maybe the wait they didn't find a jawbone right so right so the other issue is that like the family's really confused they were also they're also still really upset about the fact that the body was at the morgue and it was there for at least a month and they were like you found a body in the river is it my son? And they're like, well, we need DNA evidence, you know, to connect. And so his mom was like, DNA, me, take my blood, compare it to this body you have here. And then right after the internet really rallied behind uh, the family, all of a sudden now we have a positive ID that it's Jelani Day. And so people think that that's really suspicious. It is pretty weird. Like, why would you have a sitting there? Like, as soon as you find a body of a person you don't don't know, isn't that like something that well, see, the Chicago Sun uh, Times said that he was nearly faceless when he was discovered. Not confused. Not listen. Unfortunately, y'all, if you die in a body of water, the things in the water feast. Yeah, they're going to eat you. Um, so that's not that crazy. But so he was reported missing on August twenty fifth. So it actually wasn't even. He went missing around the same time Gabby Petito did. She just wasn't reported until. September 11th. Hmm. That's because her boyfriend's a butt. Right, right. But um, the mom was just like, 
well, her name's Carmen. Carmen is just like, why, how did this happen so fast? And here's the thing. They should be able to very quickly and scientifically explain some of this stuff. This is basic decomposition. There are body uh, facilities all over the country and North America where they specifically submerge People donate their bodies to science and they submerge them in the water or the mud or different kinds of ground to see how bodies decay. This cool. information exists. There's one in Tennessee, a couple hour drive. Huh. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Actually. Gotta have permission to go down there, though. Usually you need to be somebody who's working in forensics to right, right. gain I mean, access. Yeah, but just donating your bodies to science. Yeah, and but just... that's how they learned that. Yeah. So somebody somewhere has details on what could happen in this temperature of water how quickly it would be likely for his body to decompose in a certain way and i just find it really annoying that like across this entire process mm -hmm. these people have not been forthcoming with carmen day right which is really really weird. like just be straight with this lady she's already lost her kid right he was gonna be he was the shining like achievement of his family he was going to be a doctor and he was such a good student that the people who were like person who reported him missing was one of his teachers oh. who was like, he never misses class. Where is he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, um, also, that's another thing they're saying. Not just that the corpse had no eyeballs. It was only sockets. That is suspicious to me mm -hmm. because when animals eat bodies, they don't. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. I'm they picking up. <laughs> they leave stuff, so that's another one that's weird. Um, the missing of the jawbone, it breaking could make sense because it's in the river, it gets banged around, but being sawed off, it draws the conclusion that this was not. Not only was this not accidental, but this was a very malicious. Yeah, there's overkill. He did like trying to remove people's teeth is a forensic countermeasure. That's exactly that's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. It's like the jawbone, you, you remove that, and then they, if he had any other teeth missing, his then, front top teeth were missing too. See, there you go. This was somebody trying to make sure he was never found, and that's a major worry. So she's hired a, a forensic pathologist herself now, um, and that pathologist said the body had no brain, a lot of the organs were gone, liver and spleen. It had been severely eaten by fish, maggots, turtles. Oh, turtles. Um, but they're definitely still investigating why it was in the state that it was in. Mm -hmm. And we still don't have an official cause of death yet. Of course. So it's still very much up in the air. Lovely. And as far as the Gabby Petito case, they're still, they've completely lost Brian Landry. Hmm. He is in the wind. Really? Yep. Oh, Dog the Bounty Hunter has been talking about nonstop. Look, I, he I, knows. I've seen dog. I've seen pictures of dog. In, oh, my God. <laughs> Multiple times now he's been like, we we know where he is. In an hour, we're going to find him. You know, I used to want to be a bounty hunter. <laughs> I have a friend right now who does that. And um, a couple weeks ago, he was in Tennessee. Mm. And he he caught the guy. But the guy also like cut all of his fingers on one hand, uh, not off, but it hurt him. Yeah. I, I so being it. a bounty hunter is dangerous. Yeah. I mean, any job when you're chasing criminals is mm -hmm. pretty much dangerous. Yeah. But that was my less than popular story, though. Definitely topical. Yeah. Yeah. We need to find out what's happening to some of these people. Absolutely. All these missing people. Oh, my is God. there a serial killer? 
Well, won't know for a long time. He really won't. Not for like a couple more months. Isn't that the worst? Oh my god! Like, remember when the what did we get? Was it down in Georgia? They were like, "Is there a serial killer in Georgia?" Yes, and it actually was because remember that story I told you about People the lady. People emailed their us and were like, "Did you know about this?" And you were like, "Yes, I do." Yeah, I just I'm talked watching. about this. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay. Well, speaking of people getting cut, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say happy October to everybody. Yeah, and almost Halloween. It's our second <laughs> October. It podcast. is. I mean, well, I think we said something last week, but I don't. Uh-huh. Whatever. Spooky I'm, path. I'm just going to officially say happy October, and I hope you guys are having a great, great fall season so far. And all I'm telling y'all is. We got a very interesting sponsorship email from a very cool company. Oh, yes. And I hope it works. Can't say nothing about it yet, <laughs> but it's spooky and we're excited. Yeah. Um. So in the in the spirit of Halloween, <laughs> I got a story for you. Mm-hmm. So this is a story of a ninja. Okay. Who attacks who attacked the U.S. Army's special operate op, uh, special ops unit in California. Is this one of those um, things that should be in conspiracy crypt? No, <laughs> this doesn't actually happen. Wow, this is a, like a man or a man dressed in ninja car, ninja garb. So he was going, you know, full Naruto, uh, you know, oh, out no. on the <laughs> on the army. He attacks the U.S. Army Special Ops when in the middle of the night. When, like, what time? Um, like was this recent? Like yeah, in the it, last couple weeks? Oh yeah, it, uh, it happened like on the first of October, I think. Wow. Or no, um, uh, uh, September eighteenth. My bad. Close enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it happened at one a.m. September eighteenth. Uh, and it says it says authorities what in Ridgecrest, California, so got word of a sword wielding man he, dressed he, you know, as a ninja. Them without a warning. So these guys. The, at the U.S. Army um, special in ops, Yonker, they're caught off guard Yonkers? by this Yonker? is that guy dressed as a ninja, wielding a sword. It's airport. I just, I just love this story because, like, they he caught him off guard. Like, you're special ops. Come on now. Like, I'm, I'm guessing they were training, so maybe okay. You, you weren't expecting a ninja to come and attack you guys. Apparently, two guys got injured, Aww. and yeah, by the sword. But it's that was I just, the most amazing moment of his life. Yeah, I just want to know what kind of ninja garb he was wearing, and if it was from Naruto or not, or if we, he was just wearing all black. I mean, and, if he was like Narutoing, he was wearing the outfit. He wasn't gonna wear like a traditional like. I just, I just want to know. So, I just so want... this guy. His name is Gino Rivera. He's 35 years old. So he has to know about Naruto. Um, so he he was arrested for... I try to know as little about it as possible. <laughs> he was arrested for attempted homicide, assault. And assault with, uh, assault with a deadly weapon. Of which Bra- sword most definitely is. Yeah, uh, brandishing a weapon. Brandishing a weapon with the intent to resist or prevent an arrest. So I guess he was kind of fighting the cops when they got called yeah um along with vandalism and instructing or delaying a peace officer in performance of the duty so he got charged with a lot as he should have been yeah <laughs> i'm surprised he didn't die like hmm 
I don't want to say right. <laughs> you're right. I know exactly where you're going, and it's correct. Old buddy, old pal, made it through that experience. He alive. He attacked like he got at least two of them. He like he injured. Listen, I'll never forget that story about that kid in Florida who was high out of his mind. He like bit somebody. He like killed. Like they said, dogs on him. He Mm. like attacked the dogs. It took like a whole crew of people to take this kid down. Killed his family members. And I was like, listen, y'all shot at that man who bit the guy's face and called it bath salts. And it wasn't even bath salts. He was just crazy in general. Yep. And y'all took a whole team of people to take down this like 23 year old white boy. And I was just like, you should have pop popped him too. I just love it. At that point, he is a danger to everyone around him. He like took out a dog. That's when you definitely put it. That means he can withstand all pain right now. Yeah. They like tried to like. Zap him with the didn't work. Whatever he was on, like that's a whole different. Crystal mass is a hell of a drug. Um, People really do be on the drugs like that. Though. But yeah, it, it's just you know, I didn't, I want, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, <laughs> if it had been like I don't know, your boy I... Brian with a ninja garb, which is <laughs> with one of his samurai swords, it just attacking the. Well, US... I'm saying is that you know. So you're not allowed to walk around a ninja sword oh, yeah, and attack course. army navy seals. Shit, you see how that works? <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, that's where I got. <laughs> we were reading this week. So as far as this week's killer goes, I told you that you were going to be frustrated yesterday. Mm-hmm. I ch- I uh, had to put that person on the back burner. Okay. I've, I found so many de- so many details about his crime, less details about how he grew up, and I feel like that's important to me. So I I dipped back into another person who's been on my radar for quite some time. I'm going to read you one of his quotes. He says, "I have no desire whatsoever to reform myself." My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me. And I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them. My motto is rob them all, rape them all, kill them all. Any idea who that is? No, but it kind of sounds familiar, though. Carl Panzerim. After he'd been arrested. He's been arrested a lot. What what I will say is you're going to find that, like, holy cow. This man had the fortitude of many men. But in the worst way. He could endure a tremendous amount of pain and violence, and he only did it to cause more chaos. Like I said, he's been like on the list for a long time. Uh, I have to dabble in the stories about sexual assault infrequently because they do bring me down. Mm-hmm. So that, I guess, is also your content warning for the episode. I'm not going to go into dramatic detail, but I am going to reference a lot of sexual assault. Okay. Both perpetuated by him and against him. Here for it. All right. And so we talk about Carl Panzerum, born on June 28th, 1892 in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. He was the eighth and the last child to Prussian immigrant parents, Johan and Matilda Panzerim. His parents didn't have any like ire towards him, unlike some of the people we've discussed, but they were just 
like by the time he got there, they were just tired. Hmm. They had worked nonstop as dirt farmers on a really crappy piece of land that the government had given them. Uh, it was near Warren, Minnesota. As soon as the kids could walk, they had to help on the farm. The land was given to them as an incentive to move to the U.S. And unfortunately, as I looked into this more, the U.S. government did this to a lot of families. They gave them the crappiest land, dirt that could be farmed for almost nothing. Just it wasn't it wasn't lush with the nutrients. Why? Because we the worst. <laughs> How are we going to invite? Like, listen, come here. I'll give you an acre. You can have your family here. Y'all can be successful. And then they get here and it's that nasty gray black, like gray brown dirt yeah, that we have on the playground yeah. when the kids been running over it too many times. It's just really upsetting that that's what we did to people. And then like the 20s happened and you know, those people weren't making any money. And that's why we had to make social reform programs. We literally created the problem. Mm. Had these people had like a decent plot of land, they wouldn't have been. This is true. It's very upsetting. I'm like, why is come over here? (laughs) It's just like whenever I watch Adam ruins everything. Government is always the source of all the problems or big business. Sucks. This is true. But regardless, uh, the family was trying to get that American dream. All the, the and also these are all boys, all eight boys. Oh. They had a lot to do on the farm and the state required kids to go to school at five years old or older. So like he had to go to school, but you would think that like that would mean less time on the farm. <laughs> no, the family expected him to go to school from seven to two forty five, And then after that, he would come home and be expected to do all his farm chores. Look here. He got no reprieve. That's I'm tired <laughs> after school. I remember going to school and being tired. Go right, to take a thank nap. Thank you. I work in school and I come home tired. No, thank you. Working on the farm after. I'm that. like, what did we do today that has caused me to be so exhausted? I don't understand. All that fucking learning, all that <laughs> useless learning. Nah, not in my not in five years old. That's important learning. Uh, okay, yeah, true that. Got to learn your numbers and how to read. Yes. <laughs> But um, Carl got sick at about seven years old, and it was it was just straight up exhaustion, not like Lindsay Lohan exhaustion, but real exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And when I that I mean like Hollywood, you know, when the people do too many drugs, this was real. Like this kid had no time to sleep, like he had a couple hours a night. Um, and since he never got a break, he never got better. And at school, he was almost like a blank, like a blank void. A teacher would ask a question, and he was just like, "Huh." <laughs> And, like, they couldn't, like, his friends couldn't even convince him to, like, play games on the playground. Oh, damn. He's just like, what? What are we doing? Shortly after the physical issues set in, he got, like, this really terrible cough that never went away because they never took him to a doctor. He got an ear infection that was so, it caused so much, like, inflammation in his, like, one ear that he went deaf. And finally, his dad was like, this is a problem. So, it was a problem because... When you are unbalanced in that way, mm-hmm. you can't walk straight. Right. If you can't walk straight, you can't work on the farm. This is true, true, true. So his dad was like, well, listen, <laughs> I've been dealing with livestock for years. We're just going to do what we do with the cows. What? So the whole family held little seven-year-old Carl down while dad Johan took a kitchen knife and tried to cut the infection out of his ear in the same way you might cut out an ulcer from a cow. Uh, 
the boy screamed and shook so hard that his other siblings had to lay like their entire body weight on him mm-hmm. to keep him from moving. He passed out from the pain until his dad dumped a nearly boiling pot of water on the spots that he cut to try and clean the wound. That hurt so much that he yanked himself free from his siblings and was just like screaming bloody murder. And when one of his brothers tried to like talk to him, he hauled off and just hit his older brother in the jaw. <laughs> Later on, his siblings were like, oh, he was obviously driven to madness because of the pain. But like other people have looked at this case and been like, I wonder if Johan caused some other kind of brain damage. Yeah. Specifically frontal lobe damage where impulse control is handled. Because from that moment on, Carl was a wild, violent kid. Like it's he's he there was no more thought process like, you know, oh, I'm shy. If you made him mad, he would haul off and fight you. Hmm. And the worst part is that dad didn't fix anything. So he's going through this very aggressive personality shift and the infection is getting worse. Yeah, he's still Those deaf. cuts in his head allowed for bacteria to get in. That's infected now too. He started having seizures and ended up having to be put in the hospital. Damn. At this point, we're talking about brain inflammation. <sighs> he was there for a while. Like we're talking months in the hospital. And... Uh, he finally got to a hospital, which was good, but it destroyed the family's finances. And as things were spiraling, all of his older brothers were like, this is the time to get out. Mm. So they just started leaving, moving out, uh, getting jobs. <laughs> By the time. Uh, yeah. is, is this a thing with farms? That, like kids do not want to work on farms. No, who like, wants to work on a farm, like, fam? The past, like, two stories you've told me, people on, the kids on farms, they're like, as soon as we get that chance, we're out of there. <laughs> well, if your parents treat you like that, like, I've known people who've worked on farms, and they're generally pretty happy about it. They're like, oh, I love cows. I had a really good job, you know, a really good time throwing up. But that's also because, like, that was, like, weekend chores. Right, right. That Not, wasn't every single day that they wasn't had their home life. and had to deal with milk and the cow. Yeah. That was like, oh, well, the normal staff are gone because we don't work the people who work to us, you know, work for us to death. Yeah. You know, and can you, you know, can you go in and pick up the eggs that were hatched last night? Okay. Simple stuff. Yeah. Oh, you know, but, like, people would have these, like, massive crops and, like, only the kids to help them like even now on farms i mean we're still having issues with migrant farmers and you'd be you know not a surprise uh that no one wants to be a, mi- a migrant a farm helper it's true when true. they're getting arre- like arrested and deported but you know they didn't think about that before we started doing that <laughs> so no i mean it's, it's real common in the time period right, right those the late 1800s early 1900s this was the only way that people knew to like get ahead mm-hmm Without, like, you know, being one of those fancy folks that went to the colleges. If you were regular people, apparently the farm was the way, getting land was the way to try and get ahead and make your way in America. It's just, just like with restaurants, the majority of them seem Mm. to fail. True, true. And in our cases, when they fail, it's pretty traumatic for the kids involved. Yeah, because they usually do have families in restaurants, too. Like, the family, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're family owned. Yeah. Hmm. I feel like the, the, the modern family restaurant is similar to like this kind of vibe that makes yeah that makes sense okay okay well so like i said almost all the brothers leave except for one who's a little older than carl carl is like a rampant animal 
running around the house. No one can control him. Johan just leaves. Uh, just abandons the family at this point. Oh, wow. Leaves Matilda with the house, this parcel of land making no money, and a psychotic seven-year-old. She manages to keep the bank from foreclosing on the house, but it's just her and Carl because her son that was still there, mm. he drowned on a lake on the farm. Like Not like a lake, but like a, a area of water. I've, I, It's weird to call things a lake when it's not that deep. Like a pond? Uh, a little bigger than a pond, but smaller than a lake? I don't know what that word is. We're not country people. <laughs> But regardless, so now she's there only with Carl. She doesn't even have the older brother anymore. As I said, Carl is out of his mind. Mm-hmm. She threatened to beat, like, Johan used to threaten to beat him to keep him out of trouble. But no, Johan meant that Carl did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He definitely didn't like school when his dad was around. So now he barely even went. Mm-hmm. He had consistent truancy. With all that free time, he just started walking around the town of Warren. <laughs> now, Warren was a town where there was incredible wealth and abject poverty. You could walk down the street from the nice houses and be an absolute squalor. It's very kind like, it reminds, I'm not going to say Warren is like where we live right now, mm-hmm. but there are patches of that where we live. This is true. And you take, you take, you walk three blocks a different direction. <laughs> and now all of a sudden. You're like, what the fuck? Because <laughs> what happened in the town that I live in right now is after around 2009, the recession, a lot of things got shut down. Buildings are still condemned. Mm-hmm. So you walk like three blocks up and you're in a whole neighborhood that's just sh- condemned. Houses boarded up. It's weird. It is wild. It wasn't like that before the recession because I spent time here as a child. Mm-hmm. But now it most definitely, that's what I was reminded of when I saw that. Uh, and the interesting thing about this was that Carl had a lot of time to think, as, as, but in a mindset of a child. And he was just like, it's, why is it that some people have all this money and then some people are like me? He was really too young to understand capitalism and systemic inequality. So he focused on the fact that he wanted the stuff that rich folks had. And he was going to take it if he wanted it. (laughs) He got arrested for the first time in 1899 at the age of seven for being drunk in public. (laughs) Wait, what? Age of seven, drunk in public, huh? He found his father's old alcohol store, downed it, went to the bar, met some of the older drunks. They got him drunk because they thought it was funny. Mm. Since he was so young, they didn't put him in jail. They took him back to his mom. She was like, I can't control you. And he was right back at the bar getting little shots of whiskeys from the drunks. And the thing was, like, a seven, eight-year-old drunk is funny. It's not really violent. But the problem was it lowered his his inhibitions enough Mm -hmm. that he decided at this point he was like, stealing is a great idea now. Look. So he just walked into these people's house, stole a pie, and an apple and a revolver and tucked it in his pocket. No. And ran home. I was with him with the pie and the apple. He had the gun at the no. end. Now, he was a known troublemaker in the community. So the cops show up at his house before it's even nightfall. And this time they weren't going to smack him on the hand. Because this point now, um, 11, he's 11. And they're going to make an example of him. Mm-hmm. So it's 1903, and he's sent to a reform school, the Minnesota State Training School. Now, it might have been listed as a a reform school, but this was a little tiny kitty prison. 
Um, it was hyper-Christian. It was built around the concepts of discipline and purity through punishment, specifically you punishing yourself. Um, the building is actually just like juvenile, a juvenile detention center. It's a big concrete castle. So I can imagine it was pretty intimidating when, you know, they send little kids there. Mm-hmm. When Carl got there, they took him to the warden's office and the warden was like, everybody calls me father here. Mm. No. <laughs> the warden also insisted that Carl was a homosexual. And Carl was very confused because at 11, he was like, I'm pretty sure I know about what that is. And I'll do that. (laughs) So then the warden made him strip from the waist down and inspected him for signs of sinning. Then the warden explained what a predatory homosexual might do to a little boy like him. And then proceeded to do some of those things to him. I was about to say, all the stuff that you're about to do to me, got it. He's like, listen, I'm just, you know... A, a bad man might touch you on your penis while holding him on the penis. I'm like, this is weird. That's yeah. It was, it was a shocking to him. The normally loud and aggressive Carl, like walked out of the office, just like, what the hell just <laughs> happened? They all lived in these little bunk rooms with, you know, like a big, it reminded me of a squid game, like, you know, a big room with bunk beds, yes. not five stories high, but like two, um, they didn't, we weren't allowed to have anything, like not a whole lot of stuff. It was kept very Puritan looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Carl never really had anything to begin with, so it didn't really bother him. He wasn't trying to make friends, and if anybody approached him, he just gave them like a straight scowl. In the morning, the guards came to get him, and they told him that they were going to improve him through his time at the facility. They took him to a place called the painting room that was very far off from the main building. It was near nothing else. It was inside of a warehouse that was like off the beaten path. Carl heard the name and was like, oh, this is like, I'm just going to be forced to like do work all day long. Right? No, they called it the painting room because you were likely to come out black and blue. Uh. They brought all new arrivals there with the intention of pretty much scaring you into submission. They stripped him, tied him face down onto a wooden bench, put a soaked towel in that was soaked in salt water on his back and began whipping him. It was a special whip that had perforated holes that would almost like suction against the wet skin mm-hmm. and cause a blister. And then when you got hit again, the blister would pop and then the salt water would cause more damage. Um, this happened a couple times and the warden, like what happened was the warden showed up to listen to Carl like screaming and in Carl's autobiography, he said that he realized that the warden was, like, sexually into it. it. He didn't say it like that, but it was alluded to. Right, right. He described the guy as having, like, like getting red-faced. Mm. And, like, you know, whenever he would walk in and see them beating him. So once Carl realized that they were getting turned on by this, he was like, oh, I'm not going to scream at all. So that caused the guards to like beat him harder and harder, thinking that they could break him, but they couldn't. This is going to be a consistent thing with people thinking that they can break this person. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he has the fortitude to just go through everything that we're going to talk about today. He, is he is he a Taurus? Oh, no. Wait. <laughs> when were you born again? You were born in May, right? <laughs> June 28th. Oh, uh, no. Is it Jim? Wait, no. Is it? What is that cancer? Something. I don't Yeah, my sister's a cancer and she's the beginning of June. So who knows? Um 
so the worst part about this is that like they do the beatings in the morning. You're expected to like put on your dirty, nasty clothes that they never cleaned, bleeding, and then go to class. And the classes weren't about anything that could help you. It was all about the Bible. <laughs> what, Brittany, are you saying the Bible can't help you? <laughs> I'm just saying like if you have a school, you have to at least teach them some school stuff or a skill or a trade or something. This is true. You can't be like, oh, we're going to beat you and you're going to talk about Jesus. Like, <laughs> I get it. Morality is important. Uh, then they had lunch then they went to work carl didn't have much in the way of a useful skill set so they were like fine go work in the kitchen mm -hmm. he made the food not for the kids but for the guards and the wardens the first day after they like beat the crap out of him he was really in shock and he just kind of walked around doing his tasks as like a little bit of a zombie but a couple days later he was just like you just Y'all are beating me. I'm spitting your food for like four hours. No, no, no. I'm not not gonna spit in your food. I'm going to pee in your food uh, <laughs> and also jerk off in your food. <laughs> so gross. If they left him around a liquid, he was doing something in it. And the other older boys who were there were like, "Oh, nothing. I don't see nothing." <laughs> you picked the wrong one. And they had a guard in the kitchen, but the guard was literally just there to make sure that they didn't steal knives. So he was only watching like one area of this like industrial kitchen. Wow. <laughs> you picked the wrong person. Well, Carl did awful in the class section because he'd never liked school to begin with. And he pretty much didn't have a desire to go to heaven. So they would start sending him to the paint room instead of having him go to school. So he was just getting beat all, all morning long. To the point that his wounds just never closed. The guards saw his lack of fear as a challenge. And so they were trying even harder. The place, like the guards had no training and people quit constantly. So it's this constant stream of strangers who would assault him and move on. <laughs> and the men who stayed as guards were ones who really liked it. In fact, sometimes the beatings didn't stop until the guards were physically exhausted. He endured. He was like, whatever, fam. The warden was like, I will not be thwarted by this preteen. So he buys another torture device for the painting room. It was a crank operated paddling machine that made it less physically strenuous on the children. But the problem with the machine was it gave out a measured force mm. every time that was the same force. Whereas when the humans were hitting Harl Carl, it was more intensity. The sessions went on longer and longer, but they weren't any closer to breaking him. And if Carl could withstand the beatings and walk into the dorms tear free, well, so could the other boys. Mm -hmm. The Warren got more upset because now he's like, this defiance can start a rebellion. So the Warren decides he's going to personally handle Car Carl's torture and he begins raping Carl as part of the punishment. <sighs> Along with other forms of sexual humiliation. In his biography, Carl does go into detail about this, but I'm sure we've realized the kind of man that the Warden is and we're just going to slide on past some of these details. Yes. Carl was still defiling the food, but the warden wasn't with the guards usually. He had like a fancy area that he would go eat with his wife. So one night, though, he said he was going to come down and sit amongst the plebes. And Carl was like, oh, bet this is the time. So he goes and gets the rat poison oh. from out on the shelf and dumps it into the coffee. And the guard was like the, the guard in the kitchen saw. Mm hmm. That there was an open rat poison container in the kitchen okay. and stopped him from 
poisoning all the staff. Oh, damn it. I he was he, 12 years old at the time. I thought he saw it and then was like, eh, I don't, we don't know what's going on with that. Well, the guards and the warden were like, what do we do here? Because we're already doing the worst we can do to him. We need to think about this. Or you could not fucking beat him. Well, he did learn some biblical lessons there. Uh, the one lesson that he learned through all of this was the strong will try and destroy the weak. No. Oh. And certain that he was the strongest kid out of any of them there, he started bullying other children. No. And uh, even though, like, they, he started spending, like, like, they started beating him for, like, 12 hours a day. And then they would have him do work into the night. And the problem is they hadn't realized that Carl, that Carl was raised on only sleeping two hours a night as it was. <laughs> so what they ended up doing was giving him free reign in the middle of the night. Which is not a good idea. Not for him, no. Well, so Carl decided he had enough. And he took the paint stripper from the cleaning closet. And he set the painting room and the warehouse on fire. Nice. The warden was definitely upset because he spent all that money on all that new torture stuff. And they couldn't bring in the fire department because nobody was supposed to even know about that warehouse. And how were they going to explain what this medieval torture device was doing in this room where there's children? Mm Mm-hmm. The other students just silently approved of Carl's arson. And it was so much so that some of the older kids were like, listen, here's how you get parole. Tell them what they want to hear. Carl learned a new lesson. So he started going to his classes and began repeating all the religious stuff that they were teaching him. And he didn't just like parrot it back. He got into like asking intense moral questions and really engaging his teachers. Everybody was like, Oh wow. He's so it's changed so much. (laughs) It's almost like as soon as y'all didn't y'all stop beating him every day, he stopped being defiant. Yeah. The warden signed his parole papers within a month. Good. Out of there. Carl returned home at the beginning of 1904 at the age of 13. His mom begged him to help with the farming. Matilda couldn't keep up with it. And now everything was overgrown. The crops that did grow were rotting the couple livestock they had were starving carl wanted his mom he was like listen just leave the farm lady sell it off i'm not doing this Mm -hmm. so he went back to going around gallivanting around town but the problem was when he was an 8 to 11 year old drunk they thought it was funny now he was a 13 year old alcoholic and that wasn't as much fun so he started stealing from his mom's purse to fund his drinking issue he actually enlisted an indigenous kid from the community who the locals treated like garbage, and the two of them started collectively mugging people. <laughs> and they would rob you, strip your clothes off, and run away with all your, your stuff so that you wouldn't chase after them. You were too concerned about staying modest. Yeah. They fuck modesty. Give my clothes back. His mom wrote to a local seminary, and she asked, like, listen, can my son come study with you? He knows a lot about the Jesus stuff. So this German Lutheran priest who ran the place loved that idea. The priest thought that Carl's faith was a bit of a sham. And so he started like testing him, like asking him questions all the time. And Carl wasn't stupid. So he was able to like go wit for wit and match the priest. Mm. But finally, at some point, the priest realized how to push his buttons and Carl would like snap on him and they'd start screaming. So that was the priest like, aha, see, that's the proof that he needs spiritual guidance and punishment. So the priest started beating him. And this just made Carl enraged. He's like, you're a hypocrite. So Carl had stolen. He started like sneaking out and stealing stuff. 
Mm-hmm. At one point, he stole a gun from a local farmhouse. And he started keeping that on him all the time. One day, the priest and Carl get into a fight. And as they're like, it, go- it gets a little physical. His gun falls on the ground. And the priest is like, a gun? And he picks it up, puts it directly in front of the man's, like right between his eyes, and pulls the trigger. It doesn't go off. In fact, he's so shocked, he keeps pulling the trigger. He's like, I was fitting to kill this guy. And uh, I'm sure that old priest saw his life flash before his eyes. Essentially, the thing was, he had robbed, it was a gun that was kept under somebody's bed and had been there for so long, it was never maintained. So it was just jammed. One of the other priests pulled him aside and was just like, listen, we're not going to report this to anybody, but we don't think you'd be a good fit here. You think? Well, the thing is, if they reported this, it was going to be a question of, he got returned to his mother with a full bill of health. The warden was like, he's amazing. He's great. He's like super religious now. He cares about God. So essentially, now the priests are like, what the hell happened? Like the police would be like, what happened? Mm-hmm. In the couple months he stayed with you where he went from a God-fearing little boy to a, a child who was willing to kill you. And so they didn't want the bad publicity. They didn't let him keep the pistol, though. They were like, we're just going to keep that here. We're not going to release you with a gun. Damn it. Matilda told him, listen, either you're going to work on this farm or you're going to go to school. And he was like, or option number three. I'm just not going to be here anymore. Mm. And he packed up that night and he never came back. Damn. He started doing things like hopping on trains with homeless people. And he had a couple good experiences there until he was sitting around with a bunch of uh, homeless guys in a train. And they kind of tried to entice him into the equivalent of like a gangbang. And he was like, yeah, you know, you guys have fun. (laughs) I'm just going to sit over here with my bottle. There you go. And they were like, yeah, but you're the main attraction here. No, I'm not. Well, see, so then he got his, like, angry front. He was like, I told you, no. Mm. But the problem was they had been drinking for a while. And so they just took him. Um, and they went on for, like, a long, long, long time. Okay. Um, and, like, he fought the entire time. If anybody got close to him, he bit them. He kicked them. Finally, at one point, like, they were tired themselves. And they were like, we need to sleep, but there's absolutely no way we're going to leave him on this train to get his energy back so he can kill us. I would have. So when the train slowed near a stop, they put him, they threw him off the train. (laughs) And they also threw all his shit with him because they were rapists but not thieves. Right. Carl came to and realized all his stuff was all over the ground. His bag had exploded. He was in a whole lot of plain pain covered in his own blood and so much worse. But um, he had learned a new lesson from those men. You could use your power to hurt people. Beat people up. You could also use your power to get pleasure from people. From that moment on, he was like, well, I'm going to be the only one getting the pleasure and not the one getting hurt. So he didn't just hop into any car with anybody from this point on. He started being a lot more alert and he stopped drinking as much because he was worried that if he was inebriated, somebody could hurt him. Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, he had barely healed from that first awful assault before another group attacked him. He was 14 and he was alone in a pretty dangerous world. So he was a good mark for terrible people. He ended up in a tent city and he tried to find a group that looked safe. Like I said, he limited his drinking so he could always defend himself. He ended up talking to a, a guy who was young, maybe not even that that much older than him. And they have like a good conversation. And the the guy asked him about, you know, like sodomy, as they used to call it back then. Not in a threatening way, but just like in a, hey, have you ever done this before? And Carl was interested because they were talking about it in a consensual way. Mm-hmm. So they like walked away from the camp and towards this broken down barn away from the tank city. They drank, they talked, they discussed both of them taking turns so they could both be on the side of the experience. And when Carl said he wanted to go first, the older boy called for his older friends to come out and the same thing happened. Uh, I guess the only bitter part here was at this point he was so drunk because he had let his guard down that he passed out during mm-hmm. the experience. Um, he woke up under a large piece of canvas with all his stuff in a nice pile beside him. Oh, well, how kind of them. That was also another lesson that Carl learned. Apparently sodomizing little boys must be the most fun thing you can do because a lot of old, a lot of older men are desperate to do it. <laughs> Apparently, so he was like, I must figure out what this must be about. No, you don't. Well, later in his life, Carl would say that he committed well over a thousand acts of sodomy on men younger than him. And this was more than likely the time that he started doing it. The hobos had made him feel weak and worthless. It's the same feeling he got when the warden had touched his genitals and looked at them all up close and creepy. Crazy. Now, his grand plan was to head east. And that was problematic because most trains were heading west. He really didn't want to travel at all on trains or talk to any transient people at all at this point. Mm -hmm. He started stealing to survive. He would also approach solo hobos and he would rape them. He managed to get a gun at a previous robbery and he was developing a taste for assaulting other people. One time he found two men traveling together and he made them have sex with each other at gunpoint just because he could. Another time... He was in a train car with a hobo and he was raping that man and he got caught by a railway worker who was like, ah, oh God. And he stopped and at gunpoint made the hobo rape the railroad. The wow. Railroad okay. Pretty much with a gun in his hand, he was king of the world. So he got picked up near Minnesota for theft and the police were just like, oh, he's an orphan. We're going to send him to the Red Wing training school. Red Wing was not like the previous school. They did hard labor during the day, but that was pretty much it. Like Red Wing just assumed he was a kid who had grown up on the street and he had a hard life and he could probably be taught to be good. The other boys there were like, no, (laughs) No. something's wrong with Carl. He wasn't just a bully. He was a predator. Um, And at night he would assault other boys under threats of violence. Um, Carl was convinced that there was no pleasure without pain. Either it was your pain or somebody else's pain. Hmm. The other boys were pretty much terrified of him, except for this one who was 15. His name was Jimmy. He was smaller than Carl. And even though they were the, and Jimmy would just chat with him, like he wasn't scared and they kind of became friends. Carl didn't know what a healthy relationship with anybody looked like. um, And he learned about sex through violence. So like these sort of sexual trysts that he was having 
were foreign to him. They kind of had a couple good months together. But he realized that 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 constant rage, he needed to let it out. Mm -hmm. And he thrived off of vengeance. So he and Jimmy planned an escape. And they headed out into the world. Carl had told Jimmy how he had been abused by the church. And Jimmy was like, bet, let's burn him down. (laughs) So what they would do is they would steal stuff from the church, burn the church down, and then go to a different town and sell the stuff. The two worked very efficiently and very quietly. They And they made so much money that honestly they could have just stopped. Mm-hmm. This went on for months, four months. And Jimmy got caught trying to pawn candlesticks from a local church that had burned down. He got arrested for larceny. And Carl didn't even know until days later when he went into town and heard people talking about it. The police had realized that Jimmy was an escapee from Red Wing instead sent him to an adult prison to finish out his sentence and they charged him with all of the arsons and he was given life in prison oh damn damn carl was pretty sad so he did what he knew he hopped on a train to leave behind the memories minnesota was a bust and he was just like i'm gonna go to a big city so he went to kansas just before turning 15 in 1907 he very quickly ran out of money because it was a big town, so he was like, I should probably get a job. He always wanted to be a cowboy, uh, but that wasn't really an option anymore in the U.S. And while he was wasted in a saloon, he went to an army recruiter and signed up. By the time he'd sobered up, they were already sending him to boot camp, so there really was no turning back (laughs) at that point. He initially did very well in the military. He impressed his superiors with his work ethic, but the need to be defiant got him in trouble every time. His superiors were kind of like torn. They were just like, is he like a really good leader? That's why he won't listen to us. Or is he just really hard headed in the end? It didn't really matter because there's no drinking on base and no one he could assault. So after he got his first military paycheck, he left base to go get wasted, which you're not allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And he got caught sneaking off base. Sneaking off base is a penalty, but the bigger penalty was that he was carrying army uniforms that he intended to sell off base. And that's larceny. So they sent him to Fort Leavenworth prison for two years and he stayed there from April 1908 to 1910. And they didn't care that he was underage. They dishonorably discharged him and washed their hands of him. So Fort Leavenworth has been considered for a very long time to be one of the most intense prisons in the U S and back then it definitely lived up to that rumor. The majority of the people there had been court-martialed and dishonorably discharged, and Carl was 16. The men in the prison wanted to hurt him, and Carl wanted to be alone in an area where you had survived to be in a gang. Uh, He got assaulted multiple times. He got beat up multiple times. He always fought back. Um, Eventually, the rapists were like, it's really not worth getting a broken jaw trying to get this little boy. So they stopped. Oh, no, stop. It's okay. He slowly earned some respect in the prison. Uh, the prison guards didn't like him because he had robbed the U.S. government. And so they would do a thing where they would like tr- beat the crap out of him almost to the point where he was dead. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, the other prisoners are going to finish him off. But the other prisoners didn't because they were like, nah, he didn't do anything that bad. You really didn't. So the most common way to get a prisoner to behave was you put him in a street jacket and you tightened it until they couldn't breathe and they passed out. This happened to Carl almost every day. 
<laughs> your face. There's so many awful punishments we're going to learn about today, Brian. Oh, my God. So many things we used to do to prisoners that's completely illegal. We're talking about Geneva Convention illegal. This is craziness. God. Okay. But it was great because he got what he wanted. I just want to be alone. Just, yes. <laughs> That's all I'm going to, like, if I ever, if I ever would have to go to prison for something, like, just leave me alone. Put me in a hole for, like, my sentence. Well, when that didn't work, they were like, okay, well, he has to go do, like, his labor. And because Leavenworth would have them walk to the, um, the mines. Why did I not write this down? He's the, the, the not Ivory. What is that? Everybody has their kit granite, like those kinds oh. of mines, and they would just have to bang on the walls and break rocks. That was like their job. Okay. And so they made him carry like the heavy ball and chain, like the old timey weird stuff that you think is not real prison. Yeah. He had to carry that in the several mile walk and while he was doing his job all day long. Oh, wow. So uh, the problem was when you do that, our boy Carl developed a body. Well, yes. Yeah. He was ripped. Like, to the point where if, like, a guard hit him with a baton, the baton broke. <laughs> nice. Like, where the previous prisons had made his mind strong, Leavenworth made him physically strong. So strong, he began seeking out the pedos and rapists when he first arrived. And raping them. Oh, my God. You couldn't just beat them up. And the guards were like, you know what? We're just going to let it go. At, like, he would he would rape them. He would beat the absolute crap out of these people in their cells and then leave them in, like, a bloody mess. By 1910, Carl left Leavenworth Prison, the man he was going to be for the rest of his life. He was 19, 6 foot, and about 200 pounds of solid muscle. Dangerous. When he hopped on a train car now... The drunks were like, we not fucking with him. Yeah. Nobody wanted that kind of smoke. In fact, he raped them and asserted his dominance over them immediately and then relaxed for the rest of the train ride. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that? Like, there's a group of dudes. You're a group of homeless dudes. This guy comes on, picks one of you, abuses you in front of everybody, and then goes, ah, I'm going to rest over here now, y'all. No. And just chills in the corner by himself. I would leave at the next stop Oops. and get on a new train. Like, I couldn't stay in that room with that person. No. Even if you hadn't been the one who was assaulted, it'd be terrifying. Like, I'm next. Oh, no, I'm getting out well, of here. Yep. He stopped in Denver, Colorado. And so at this point, he had never had, like, a interaction with a woman. Mm. So he randomly, like, raped, like, a hobo lady and got gonorrhea. He actually got a really bad case of gonorrhea. And he's very upset. And he was like, I've raped a whole lot of men and have never gotten this problem before. I was about to say. Gosh, <laughs> women are the worst. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say, you raped all these men. Nothing. Oh, my God. He was just like, this, see, this is why I don't even like girls. Oh, my God. John. He had to stay in town to get his medicine. And while he was in town, he tried to steal a bike. And the, they dropped him in the local jailhouse. He was only supposed to be there for like a month. He ended up meeting this like 50-year-old guy who was a safe cracker who was serving a life sentence for helping somebody rob a bank. Carl was like, that's a really good skill to learn. So I'm going to become this guy's friend because he learned that the way to get you should get close to people so you can learn stuff. Mm -hmm. Not so you can have a good relationship with them. No, what are you talking about? No. 
Um, the old man benefited from Carl being a mean fucking fighting machine because was nobody going to mess with that old man <laughs> while Carl was there. He's my dude. Unfortunately, because Carl wasn't fighting people and wrecking stuff, they were released him early. Oh. And he was very upset. So he broke back into prison <laughs> to try and break out his friend. And they threw him in a cell and called the cops and added another month to his sentence. Now, when the safecracker heard about this, he was like, is he trying to break me out because he likes me? No. So at one point, like they go to like they what they would do is they would find a little private area in the prison and like talk to each other all day and learn stuff. Mm -hmm. He would show him all the things that he learned. So this time, though, the old man was like. He tried to kiss Carl. Oh, the problem is outside of that, like weird teenage thing that he had with Jimmy when he was in juvie, he didn't have any positive like interactions with adult men. Mm hmm. So he was like, normally when someone tries to kiss me, they're trying to rape me. So he like threw the man down on the ground and just yeah. took him. And everyone was confused in this situation. Carl's like, this is what, what happens when this happens, right? And the old man was like, that was a lot. So he spent the last month with no friend and no learning any more code cracking. Aww. He ended up drifting for a bit. Um... And while he was at a Kansas State Fair, he got a job offer to handle the animals and the crowds because he was a big old mother. The problem was that Carl fought anybody for any reason. He still had that uh, impulse control problem. Mm -hmm. And it was bad enough that one time he was like moving stuff along and a horse bumped into him, but he didn't realize it was a horse. He thought it was a person. And he turned and swung on the horse, knocking the horse out. Oh. So his boss was like, I can't have you working here anymore. So Carl hopped on a train and followed the circus people, the fair people, to the next town. Mm -hmm. Then he went inside while they were sleeping and he set the tent with all of the animals on fire. <laughs> Why? That was he, your fault. <laughs> then he sat on a hill and he watched everything burn. <laughs> Uh, it took a while before the people who worked there could, like, stop the fire. And the animals all died, which meant so did the little circus fair die. And Carl left and caught a train to St. Louis. When he gets to St. Louis, the Illinois Central Railroad Company is in the midst of a worker strike because of dangerous conditions. Mm -hmm. And Carl would have ignored the picket line, but he, he went to a local bar and a recruiter noticed him and was like, you want a job? So here's the thing. There are two kinds of strike breakers out there. One that people refer to as a scab. Mm -hmm. The scab is the person who crosses the picket line and does the job that people are specifically striking for. And then there's another kind of person called a blackleg. Blacklegs are what Carl was hired to do. Blacklegs attack people in the picket lines. They are regular people who infiltrate the picket lines and cause trouble. Oh. Carl's very good at fighting. So he would just charge people and start whooping ass. <laughs> Within a week, he had scared everybody so much that they had stopped picketing. He had a lot of money for his issues. And uh, he also knew that the town seriously disliked him. <laughs> so he hightailed it out of St. Louis. As I said before, Carl had a really complicated relationship with homosexuality. He would have 100% denied 
being gay and our current definition of the word today. Um, like outside of that little tryst with Jimmy, he'd only explored gay sex as a form of violence. Mm -hmm. He ended up latching onto a form of sexuality in the homeless community called the Yeg. So the Yeg was a homeless man who kept a young person with him. They either called that person a punk or an Angelina. Both of these people were criminals and the relationship was symbiotic, but it was rarely consensual. Oftentimes the punk was a kidnapped child that was used to like crawl into small places in houses. And the Angelina or the punk was protected by the egg, but also sexually abused by the egg. They were also, the, the children were also frequently tr traded hmm. between eggs if they got too big for the job they had been needed for, or if the person was just bored and wanted a different one. Carl got himself a punk after he left St. Louis. Carl doesn't remember, like, the, so a lot of these details are from his actual autobiography. It's roughly 20,000 words that he wrote when he was on death row. Mm -hmm. um, he describes the child in the book, no name, but as curly-haired, blue-eyed, a curly-haired, blue-eyed, rosy-cheeked fat boy. Okay. He adored this little kid. It was weird. They were little burglary buddies. <laughs> um, and they burglar burglarized across the U.S. with Carl using some of that safe cracking knowledge that he learned in prison. He wasn't as good as it as the dude was, but mm -hmm. it was good enough. They always made it in. And the interesting thing was that Carl was a real penny pincher, which is very common of people who are raised in poverty. He rarely, he wouldn't even allow the little boy to spend the money that was rightfully his. He was like, we don't buy new clothes until our clothes are falling apart. Which, strangely enough, probably kept them off the radar of police looking for them because they always looked like hobos. Right, right. He also started carrying a Bible and an account book as a ruse to show that he was a God-fearing man who had just fallen on hard times. And he used that as a con when he could. When the con didn't work, though, um, and people didn't believe him, he would throw them off of moving trains because he was done with them. So Carl and his Angelina got caught trying to break into an old warehouse in Jacksonville, Texas. And the local police put them on a roadwork crew, chain gang. Mm -hmm. The police took Carl's weapons but left him with the child, which seems like a bad idea. The boss of the road crew decided he wanted the little boy. So he took him. Oh. And normally Carl would have fought people, but he was surrounded by six armed men. So he could not fight them. After a week, the boss was pretty tired of the boy and like threw him back to the other prisoners, thinking that the prisoners would like have their way with the boy too. Mm -hmm. But nobody touched him because everybody was like, Carl has been seething with rage and stares at your tent every night. He's going to kill you. <clears throat> Well, they served their 40 days, which is what he was given. And on the final night of his duty, Carl went to the boss to, like, get all his stuff. Mm -hmm. The road boss is like, oh, no, you can't leave. You're too good. He's like, well, we, we actually hit our deadlines when you're here. So that night, Carl was just like, I'm just going to leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, a guard with a shotgun was like, no, they told us to watch out for you, that you were going to try and run away. So even though the following morning was in the day 41, he was a free man. They decided they were going to punish him. And a common punishment was called a snorting pole. So what it was is they put a 12 foot pole that was erect, put up rope runs to the hoop at the top. And then there's handcuffs and they pull the rope 
and it pulls you up so that you're barely like on your tiptoes. Okay. And then they proceed to like beat the crap out of you. And it was called a snorting pole because of the sound that people would make, oh. you know, <laughs> breathing in mm-hmm. like that. Um, and the whips that the road crew used were lead tipped. This went on for like an hour, but it couldn't, they couldn't get a sound out of him. When they lowered him back to his feet, he didn't stumble. When the boss came over to gloat, he was shocked to see Carl. Actually, Carl described it in his own words as, there was blood on my back and murder in my heart. I think the boss recognized that look too and was like, you can go. Oh. Um, Carl's things were not returned and neither was the child. Huh. He had absolutely nothing but the bloody clothes on his back. And for a little while, he was just scavenging food like an animal, starting grass fires for fun. Everything he'd earned had been taken from him, so he was ready to pretty much ruin anything he touched. His next stop was Oregon. He got a real job for once as a seasonal logger, and it was so good for him. He was by himself cutting down trees. This was a great time. And then uh, as he got laid off for winter, he went back to being a criminal. Started working his way down the Pacific coast, leaving behind a trail of people who were beaten, assaulted, and with no money. He took anything he could get his hands on, cash, jewelry, bikes. Even once he stole a yacht and he crashed it. In San Francisco, he tried to sell his stolen goods and he buried most of them and took like one nice gold piece. And he he found people in a bar. He'd been talking too much. Mm. He was in this bar called the Louvre, of course, named after the fancy place. And... The police got him and they were like, well, you have to have a lot of other stuff with how you were talking in the Louvre. And uh, he agrees to a lighter sentence if he tells the cops where he hid all the stuff. The judge, however, lied and he didn't find that out until he got to the new prison. Uh. He like that he was for a full seven year sentence anyway. He told the judge. He like he told the warden, he's like, this is a mistake. I signed a paper saying I was only supposed to do a year. And the warden was like, the judge sent a paper saying that you need to be here because you're a career criminal. And this sentence is reflective of your past crimes. He started cussing and screaming <laughs> and they threw him in a cell. He was so mad that he bent the cell bars out of their sockets and got out of the cell. But he didn't try and leave. Instead, he grabbed rags, and because of the way that the locks were made, he shoved the pieces of the rags inside of the locks so nobody could get out anywhere. Oh. Then he beat every guard that he came across unconscious. And he finally found, like, the warehouse where people worked. He set that on fire. The fire didn't really spread the way that he wanted it to, but with everybody locked in their different rooms in the prison, nobody could get out to fix it so it was you know did enough damage the prisoners had to be evacuated out into the yard so firefighters could come in um every remaining guard who was not beat the hell up was used to drag a screaming raging carl out of the building the other prisoners were hyped this was the most exciting thing that had ever happened in years in fact like the guards ended up just holding carl down and breaking his ankles with hammers oh damn oh Then they took him to solitary and left him there, just starving. When they pulled him out, it was to transfer him to Salem Correctional Facility, which was the worst prison in the U.S. at the time. Carl's injuries were pretty bad, but he wasn't going to show anybody any weakness. The first day he was in Salem, he took the chamber pot in his cell and he threw it on the first guard, full, 
who walked by him. That's so gross. They responded by beating him unconscious and chaining him face first to the door of his cell. I mean, yeah. This was good for Carl because he wasn't on his feet, which allowed his ankles to heal faster. (laughs) He's still mad, though. So anytime anybody walked by, he like screamed at them and cussed at them. Now, the Salem Correctional Facility was under new management um, by this guy named Henry Minto. He was an ex-cop who wanted to use the prison to make money and very illegal ways. So the first thing he does is he comes in and he cuts the people's money by two thirds. All the money that was meant to go to their families stole that. And I think uh, he treated Salem like it was his little kingdom and he wanted absolute obedience from his staff and his prisoners. I think I, I think you know where I'm going to go with this, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carl was not a man who did uh, obedience. So Mito hired a man referred as Vinegar to try and break Carl. Vinegar was a weird guard. If someone was like insubordinate, he'd take them into his little office full of like roses. And then he would like beat you amongst the beautiful things with like the music. (laughs) And these whips were steel tipped and he would do it for hours. But just like any other time, Carl never made a sound. This 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 guy, he just sounds like a character from a movie. I'm like, maybe that's where they got the character from the movie. Like from a from a certain movie. I don't know. Like he has to be some someone. But okay. But uh, <clears throat> I assume that the reason why Carl is not reacting as much as people want him to is at this point, like this guy's gotta have like an inch of scar tissue on his back at this point. Mm. Like, yeah, he's stubborn, but like how like it's that's probably muting some of the pain he's been getting whipped since he was what 11 years old yeah nobody could make carl submit though not even vinegar so minto called him to his office one day and decided to try and talk to him man to man carl spit in his face and he was like i'm not serving seven years in this place (laughs) minto's like fine go back to your cell the next morning they get him they put him in an ice bath he's like I've literally been cuffed outside and hosed in the cold in past prisons. That's like such a common prison punishment. Ice bath. Is this the best you can do? (laughs) He's like, on top of that, I literally was raised in a place that had no hot water. Like, so vinegar puts on a rubber raincoat and rubber gloves so that nothing touches him. Carl laughs in his face. Then vinegar pulls out a sponge that has a battery wired to it. When he tossed it into the water, it didn't really cause him anything at all. Mm-hmm. The device was called the hummingbird. It only hurt when it touched skin. And it was a torture that could happen over and over, and it never left a mark. But it felt like you were being burned alive. The problem was, I just didn't understand that you could go all in on Carl, and he was going to go all in on you. So after that hummingbird bath incident, he set, a fire, he set fire to the prison workshop there. Um, and then during the chaos of that situation, he grabbed an axe and began chasing the guards around the prison. <laughs> um, also during this time, while there's all this craziness, there's a fire, he's got an axe, guards are scared. Mm-hmm. Um, there'd be prisoners who are like trying to get out of their like little cells. And he's like, here, let me get you a boost. So he would stop and help them get out oh, wow. and then go back to trying to kill the guards. <laughs> I don't. I don't like him. But it's I, weird, right? But I don't dislike him. <laughs> I don't like you, though. Well, the thing was, he was too big to get out of the little tiny windows. So he was like, no worries. I'm going to help you. Minto didn't know what to do. 
He was just like, I've never had a prisoner like this before. So he sends Carl to the dungeon for 61 days. Mm -hmm. Dark Dungeon is an underground cell, complete darkness, no food, no water. He legitimately ate rats and cockroaches in the dark to survive. When they unlocked the doors, honestly, they didn't expect him to be alive. Or they expected him to go crazy because that happens a lot. He walked out of the cell fine, just a little bit skinnier. From that moment on, he attempted to escape every single day. At any given time, he was working on at least six or seven escape plots. <laughs> he stole lemon extract from the prison stores, turned it into booze, got 10 of the biggest, baddest prisoners drunk and riled up so that they would start a fight with the guards. And then while they were fighting the guards, he snuck 12 prisoners out. Wow. He taught a l- bunch of other prisoners how to smuggle saw blades out of the workshop and use them to cut the bars on their cells. They started doing the hummingbird punishment every day, but it did nothing for him. Mm-hmm. A guard would see him like leave the hummingbird thing and like limping uh, around the corner. And then by the time the guard got around the corner, Carl was boosting somebody out of the window. Like, it's all good, fam. Here you go. <laughs> Carl taught another prisoner how to escape named Otto Hooker. And Mento, uh, when he escaped, Mento went on the manhunt to find him. They cornered Otto and Otto killed Mento. Mm. Of course, the prison said that it was Carl's fault that Mento was murdered and added seven more years to his sentence and threw him in the dungeon again. When he was released, he was pretty happy to learn that Mento was dead. But Mento's brother, John, signed up to be the interim superintendent specifically to get revenge on Carl. Wow. But he wasn't going to get it because <clears throat> September 7, 1917, at 25 years old, Carl escaped. He used a hacksaw to remove the bars. Now much slimmer from like four months in the dungeon, mm-hmm. he slipped through the gap. He used a bucket handle and turned it into a grappling hook, scaled the prison wall, and ran off to the nearest town, which is called Tangent, Texas. He broke into the first house he saw, stole a 38 pistol, headed for a train station. A local deputy saw him, tried to capture him. They got into a fight. Both of them shot. Once Carl was out of bullets, he walked over with his hands in the air. And then as soon as the cop holstered the gun, he attacked him. Only reason why that guy didn't die is because the rest of the deputies showed up at that moment. Mm -hmm. Like, Carl kicked out the windows of the squad car. He bit people trying to hold him. They still dragged him back. Where he was dumped in solitary again. The new Minto prepared to set up a prison inside of the prison for Carl and all of his other troublemakers. By the time that was by the time this punishment that I'm about to tell you about is over, mm-hmm. only ten people have survived. Oh wow. He called it the bullpen. It was a big room that they put in the jail and they put a big chalk circle in the thing. Mm-hmm. And all you could do while you were in the chalk circle is walk. And you had to walk around with man behind you was a circle. And you had to put your hand on the person in front of you on your shoulders. So the rules were, if you stopped, you got shot. If you moved your hand off the person in front of you, you got shot. If you moved out of the circle, you got shot. If you stopped walking, you were shot. Loads of people died the first month it was implemented. Mm. But not Carl. Carl subsisted on just his hatred of mankind. At that point, the state discovered the bullpen and were like, you can't do that. <laughs> After all these people have died, <laughs> that's when you find out also, about it. Also, I got the wrong state, but regardless. Mm. 
I said Texas, but I was like, Texas was like three prisons ago. Um, so they bring in another superintendent. His name was Murphy. Murphy was not like the others. He was just like, listen, um, corporal punishment only works like some of the time and torture never gets you good results. Mm -hmm. So he got rid of all of the harsh punishments in the prison. He banned solitary confinement, except if a prisoner needed to be isolated for their own safety. The worst punishment anybody got was being put on potato peeling duty. He improved the food, which stopped the scurvy that was running rampant through the prison. He made new jobs so everybody could make more money. Everyone was paid fairly. Literally every other prisoner was cool with this except for Carl. So Murphy was like, Bat, give him more food and let him have magazines in his cell. When they find a saw blade in his cell, Murphy calls him to the office for a chat. Carl's like, listen, I'm the worst person here and no amount of treating me soft is going to make me a soft man. I'm going to fight you like I fought my dad and every other man who's abused me in my life. So Murphy was like, he, he proposed something crazy. He went, I'm going to let you leave the prison tomorrow. All you got to agree to do is come back. And the next day, Carl was like, this is definitely a setup, but I'm going to walk outside. He was prepared for armed guards or somebody to follow him, just something. Nobody bothered him. Hmm. He sat on a rock like in the woods, not far from the prison and just thought about stuff all day. And then he came back to the prison gates and was like, they told me to come back before dark. And they opened the doors. Wow. Gave him a job that he enjoyed and he did really good. He played on the prison baseball team. He's bad at it. So Murphy was like, bet, why don't you try and join the band? Carl was also not good at making music. (laughs) Carl was like, listen, buddy, I'm too stupid to learn things right now. So I'm going to just need you to not do this to me, buddy. <laughs> and so Murphy was like, I don't believe that. You can be the band leader. You can be the baseball manager. There you go. He was at one point allowed to go drinking with the local nurses. They let him stand outside at night and smoke. They started discussing parole because he only had four years left on his sentence. Can I just stay? <laughs> but Carl was Carl. And for some reason, Carl could not let himself have any peace. Mm. So on May 12th, 1918, he escaped. This time, the guards weren't too bothered seeing him outside because they were used to seeing him come outside and smoke until they saw him scaling the walls and were like, oh, no. <laughs> and they started shooting at him. Um, they actually ended up shooting over 200 rounds and none of them hit him. Murphy lost his job after they could not find Carl. Oh, which is unfortunate. Superintendent Murphy might have been the only person in power who ever treated Carl with any kind of respect. That just, he just sounded like an awesome guy. Well, Carl shaved his mustache, changed his name. Salem had changed him, but not in the way the Mentos really wanted. It was Murphy who had changed him. Carl actually felt a lot of guilt for hurting Murphy. And like a lot of people with too much trauma and no way to work through it, Carl started sabotaging himself. I'm going to give you some of the highlights of some of these cases because there's just too many. Mm -hmm. He ended up doing bids in Fresno, California, Rust, Texas. Uh, the Dales, Oregon, Harrison, Idaho, Butte, Montana, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Austin, New York, Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York, and Washington, D.C. He gets caught, he escapes, he goes somewhere else. In fact, he would only stay in a prison cell if the sentence was under a month. Oh. And if he didn't have anything more important to do. (laughs) What do you have to do? (laughs) 28 years old, he decides... I'm, I want to get revenge on the man who put me in Fort Leavenworth. Do you know the person who put him in Fort Leavenworth? Uh, I don't even remember. That's like so many prisons ago. Ex-president William Howard Taft. Uh, 
Okay, how are you going to get to Our 27th president. Well, he was no longer the president anymore, so he just had a really nice house. And so he broke into the ex-president's house, stole a 45 caliber pistol that was, like, really, really nice. Mm. And he knew that it would, it was, he knew that it would be missed and that any bullet he shot from it would be linked to Taft. He wanted to burn down Taft's house, but he didn't have enough time because the house was too big. So he just jumped out of the window, hightailed it to New York. He could, if he had sold that stuff that he got from Taft, like legally, mm. it would have been well over worth ten thousand dollars. Oh wow! But as it was, he fenced it for about three cray. Bought a boat, got a crew, started robbing people. Then he would take his crew, get them super drunk, rape them, throw their bodies over the edge of the boat, rinse and repeat. Did this. All summer long. This sounds like you're talking about a pirate now. Is he a pirate for a while? He does go on a little bit of a pirate. <laughs> he sounds like a pirate. It took about three weeks before people realized that, like, all the people who worked for him disappeared. No one said anything, but Carl, well, they were like, mm. he went for one more kill. And a massive storm swept the Atlantic, destroyed his ship, all of the loot he'd been holding on to for that whole month, everything. All sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. His two crewmen survived, which are roughly the only two people that Carl Panzerim said were going to die and mm-hmm. survived. And it took an act of God to save their lives because he was going to murder them that night. He was also upset because the Taft's gun, because what he had been doing was shooting them with the gun before mm. throwing them over the, the side of the boat. Mm. So that when those bodies wash up to shore, it would have a bullet from Taft's gun. So he's real upset that the Taft's gun is now at the bottom of the ocean, too. Oh, damn. Because it had been used in over a dozen murders. He still wanted to be on the ocean, though, so he caught a ship to South Africa and landed in Luanda, the capital of Portuguese Angola. He's the foreman of an oil rig. He's pretty successful um, until he gets in trouble there and he burns it down out of spite. Um, he got in trouble because he was, like, trying to, like, prove to himself that he wasn't gay. And he, like, forced a family to, like, give them, give him their, like, eight-year-old daughter. And he was like, I'm going to inspect and make sure she's a virgin before you marry her to me. And he absolutely horrific things. Then he demands the little girl's younger sister. And then in the middle of the night, he was just like, I'm just got to be honest with myself here. I'm gay. I'm, I'm not only am I gay, but I'm the worst. Yeah. I'm bad. You're terrible. So he, like, in the middle of the night, takes the six-year-old girl and gives her back to her parents. Mm. But that was after he'd already, like, traumatized the eight-year-old. Yeah. Um, He told the police that this is definitely when he began committing his most horrendous crimes, which was abducting and raping little boys. His first victim was Angola, was about 11 years old, and after he was done, he smashed the child's head on a rock, left the body there. Also hightails out of Angola, back to the U.S. Kills two boys in Salem, Massachusetts on July 18th, 1922. Strangles a third boy near New Haven. July 21st, they find the body of one of the little boys. He had been seen fleeing the area, and so it was all over the news. Mm-hmm. He goes to Yonkers and gets a job as a night watchman. He ends up, like, he there's this teenage boy named George, like, hangs out with him. And he's like, bet, I'm going to rape him. But when he goes to do it, the teen boy's like, no, 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 I want this. So it becomes like a weirdly consensual thing. But it's very confusing for Carl because he's like, I don't understand. What do you mean you want this? So they kind of like do that for a while. And then he quits his job in the spring of 23. 
He goes back to the train yards and the hobos, but it's different now. Because of the crop failure that was going to turn into the Dust Bowl, regular, like, families were on trains now. Like, trying to find a new place to live. All the old timers were gone. There was no more Yeggs, no more Angelinas. Now, like I said, you hopped on a train, you saw a whole family. So Carl was like, ah, maybe I should just go back to being on the ocean. I liked that, like, two months. He was like, I'm going to steal a ship. And so he did. And he named it. The same ship as the other one. He got the papers forged and everything. Oh, wow. Made this new boat look like his other boat. It's um, a pirate life for me. Come mm-hmm. on. <laughs> Yo, ho, ho. And then he's like, my plan is I'm going to go back to Yonkers. I'm going to pick up my little teenage boo. And uh, then we're going to live on the ocean forever. First, he needed money, though. So he went to New Haven, Connecticut. He hit up a couple middle class homes so it wouldn't hurt the police. Mm-hmm. Like, alert the police. But the problem was that all the stuff was hard to carry alone. So then he was like, wait. What if I just rob the other yachts on the port? Works super good. And then he goes to pick up George mm-hmm. in Yonkers. George is like so shocked. He's like, wait a second. I thought you were just a night watchman. You have money? <laughs> this is the first time that Carl's like, you know what? I'm just going to let this boy believe this lie. <laughs> George can only see the best of me. George really liked Carl, but he hated the ocean. He got seasick every day. Mm. Um, Carl ended up repainting the ship, renaming it, and going like, fine, I'm going to sell it, and we can just go live somewhere. Mm-hmm. He got a buyer. They sat on the boat. They discussed terms. The buyer was shady, and the buyer pulled a gun on him and George. Now, George is terrified because he's a 15-year-old. Carl, not terrified. Before this guy even has the opportunity to mutter a threat, Carl pulls his gun and shoots him. Carl is like, George is like, we have to call the police. Carl's like, no, we don't call the police. We're going to use the other anchor we have on the boat and we're going to put it on him and he's going to drop himself into the Hudson. There you go. They sail away through the night. Like, at this point, Carl had killed so many people, and he's like, the one that's going to ruin my relationship is the person who actually tried to hurt me, and it was literally in self-defense. In the morning, uh, Carl gets out. He goes to Poughkeepsie to get some things. When George woke up and saw that Carl was gone, he jumped out of the ship and swam for dear life. The current took him to Newburgh. Fishermen pulled him out of the water. He told the police that Carl had offered him a job and that Carl had raped him And he had only just escaped. The police put out an alert to look for Captain O'Leary. The police didn't really seem to care much about the whole he raped me thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the police knew it was a lie or they just didn't care. They cared more about the, this teenager says there's a body at the Hudson because of Captain O'Leary. When Carl returned and saw that George was gone, he was pretty devastated. He made it to the town of Nyack and docked at Peterson's boatyard. He didn't talk to anybody. And he woke up with a shotgun in his face. That's because unlike the old days and the old ways that Carl had gotten away with things was moving from city to city. Well, now because of all the organized crime in all the big cities, police stations were talking to each other because they were trying to find, you know, the likes of the mob and the mafia. Carl told them he was 40 and from Nevada, even though he was only 32 years old, they put him in jail. July 2nd, just days after being captured, he attempted to escape, ended up in solitary. Carl calls a lawyer and the lawyer's like, who is this rando who doesn't know who I am? Carl convinces the lawyer to pay his bail in exchange for the yacht. When the lawyer goes to get the ship from being impounded, they're Mm -hmm. like, no, these are all fake papers. You've been swindled. 
And he was like, you have to go find it. He went to the hotel where Carl said he was going to be. Gone. Not there. Of course, not there. And like <clears throat> the cops were just thinking this is the most hilarious thing ever that a lawyer got robbed by his client. When he got arrested in Danamora, he started admitting to lots of crimes. And the thing was, he wasn't lying. But the problem is, it's so unlikely that somebody would have all these different aliases across all these different states. Legitimately, he tried to get the $500 reward for telling on himself about a case in Oregon. <laughs> the police were like, that's funny. And they said he was what called, what's called a chiseler. A chiseler is a criminal who confesses to a lot of crimes just for the intention. He makes a deal for a lighter sentence and government screws him again. In Danamore, he made a bomb uh, and set that off. That was terrible. Then he tried to escape and managed to climb up like a 30-foot wall and he fell, almost dying. He broke both ankles, his legs, and spine. He ruptured his groin and his internal organs pulled between his legs. Like, this is trauma. And the thing is, he screamed, but there was a mental health facility like near the prison Mm -hmm. where they constantly heard people screaming. It was for mentally insane prisoners. So they just assumed it was those people screaming until finally they like walked by um, and saw him. They put him on, like they picked him up and this was the first time that Carl had ever wept or screamed in pain in a prison. Mm -hmm. He thought they were taking him to the hospital wing. They put him in solitary confinement. His body repaired itself the best way that it could. Bones, when they're broken, don't, they have to be realigned. Mm -hmm. His did not. Finally, a year later, they took him to a doctor. Like his ankle, like when he took a step, his, his body crunched. The doctor, who was honestly pretty war torn after working in a prison for so long was like wow he scheduled a surgery fixed the groin issue put all the organs back inside of his body um his legs were beyond repair because in order to fix carl's legs at that point Mm -hmm. you would need to he would need to re-break the bone in every spot Mm -hmm. and realign it that's the kind of thing that in the early 1900s only two or three people even knew how to do and those people definitely weren't prison doctors. Um, actually, while they were repairing his, while the doctor was repairing his groin, the the guards were like, take away one of his testicles. You know, like what they do for a dog. What the? F- the testicle was like, they were like, listen, maybe if he produces less testosterone, he won't be as like aggressive. That's, is, okay. Then, like I said, like a dog. Took a couple days before Carl could sit up and eat again. He was very concerned on if he could perform sexually. So he climbed into another patient's bed and began sexually assaulting the other patient. The guy started screaming. The doctor walked in, had no idea what was going on, went to go get the guards. And by the time the guards came, he had finished what he had set out to do Mm -hmm. and was like, hey, I'm not ruined. It still works. I just learned that in the most horrible way, though. He spent the last five years of his sentence in solitary. Great. Awesome, that's where you belong. So one day, they dumped him out in the street, and they were like, you're free. Get out of here. He made his way down to D.C., where he got arrested August 30th, 1928, for trying to steal a radio. 
while he's detained here, he's like, yeah, I killed three boys on my way down south from New York. I killed another one in Salem, another one in Connecticut, a 14-year-old in Philadelphia. Also, I've been thinking about just, you know, mass murder and maybe poisoning the water supply. They also didn't know what to do with him at this point. They dumped him into a D.C. jail while the higher-ups decided what they could do. Um, he couldn't really walk tall the way he could before, but they did find him chipping at the mortar outside of his cell window. He is determined. <laughs> this is a determined ass motherfucker. Oh my God. That's what I'm saying, fam. So the guards actually took him outside to put him on the snorting pool. This time, however, when they yanked him up, it put so much strain on his shattered legs that he screamed like bloody murder. And he began giving a detailed explanation of how he was going to rape and murder each of the guards who was there. It actually spooked them. Like they were like, this is really detailed and kind of scary. So they knocked him unconscious and then put him back in his cell. The interesting thing here was that just one murder was enough to put him away for life. But the problem was they didn't know where to put him because he'd escaped from so many freaking prisons. They decided to send him back to Leavenworth. And his first day there, he stands up at dinner and goes, you know who I am and what I've done. I'm going to kill the first man who bothers me. Carl was tired and nobody bothered him. So he didn't bother anybody else. He only actually complained to the warden and threw letters at that Hmm. saying that um, all the jobs at the prison were too hard on him because of his legs. He's like, every job requires me to stand. Can you find a job for me where I can just sit down? Right. So the warden's like, you know what? We have this person who's considered to be like one of the most dangerous people in America. And all he wants is to sit down. He hasn't caused any trouble since he got here. Screw it. They make a job for him. He now gets to fold laundry in the laundry room with nobody else. Okay. Awesome. Um, the only person who ever watched him was laundry foreman Robert Wark. Carl was positively miserable at this point in his life. He was ready to call it quits. He just needed to find a way to do it. So one day when it was cold, Robert peeked into the laundry room and Carl was waiting for him with a copper pipe and he beat Robert to death and they took him directly to death row. On death row, he did make friends with a guard named Henry Lesser. Henry was fascinated by this guy Pretty much, he was the one who encouraged Carl to write down everything he could remember about his life. That document that he wrote, those that 20,000 word confession, mm. became the autobiography that is the main source of this podcast today. For Carl, like I said, it was a confession. It was cathartic. On April 14th, 1929, he went to trial for killing the guard. Carl pled not guilty, and he refused to have a lawyer represent him. He rebutted nothing from the prosecution. That was specifically because he didn't want anyone to defend him. Hmm. He wanted to die. He actually, after he was convicted, wrote a letter to President Hoover and was just like, can you please not drag this out? I would like a swift execution, please. And funny enough, Carl received letters from different civil rights campaigns who were like, no, we're going to fight to save you. And he responded with violent letters about how he would torture (laughs) them and burn them alive. Oh, my God. On September 5th, 1930, he got his wish. In fact, he was so ready to be done with Earth that while the executioner was trying to, like, tie the noose, 
he said he got mad and was like, hurry up, you hosier bastard. I could have hung 10 men in the time it took you to tie this knot. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love it. Then he walked over, spit in the executioner's face, put the noose around his neck. And then when one of the guards said, do you have any final words? He just started cussing everybody out. Oh, damn. It was like, it's not even listed as his, his final words because it was unintelligible. He insulted everybody in the room and he just didn't stop. Like he was just letting forth his like rage at everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Finally, the executioner was like, he's not going to stop. So he just pulled the lever and Carl's neck was snapped mid word. No one came to collect his body. No family ever responded to the prison. Mm -hmm. He was buried in a potter's field in a pauper's grave with a single piece of wood that said, 3161 4. And thus ends the life of Carl Panzerum. Okay. I just don't know. I don't think I've ever read about another person who was that. Like, if only he had used that energy to do something positive in the world, yeah, like, he could have affected a lot of change. And, and just like that guard, he's. I'm very interested. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Henry Lesser, uh, after this, uh, sh he, it took decades for him to get the book published. Yeah. I'm glad he did. It's a very interesting perspective and it's an interesting perspective in a way that is not like indulgent. Right. A yeah. lot of times you'll read a serial killer book from a serial killer. Like example, Gary Ridgway. Mm. I think I'm so, I'm so smart. I'm so this, I'm so that. Only thing that Carl was ever really like like that about was like, listen, I'm a bad person, and I don't know what you want me to, want me to tell you about this. I'm yeah. just a bad person. I've only liked two people in my entire existence, and I put up with the one. He's like, I liked Jimmy, I liked George, and Murphy was all right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was only like 34 when he died. What a short, tormented tread. Like I felt like it insane was insane life. Yeah. Especially, you know, when, well, that's the other thing, too. I realized I was like a 10, 10 page mark of writing. Mm. And bruh was only like 15. I was yeah. like, we still got third, like 17 more years of this dude's life to talk about. Holy Jesus. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. That, was a, that was a good one. That was really, really uh, compelling. Yeah. And that's one of those, like. Like I said, I always knew about him because he has one of the most memorable last words. Mm -hmm. Him yelling at his executioner to hurry up. <laughs> hurry the fuck up. But I definitely uh, didn't realize. I knew why he went to prison. Actually, believe it, um, his official kill count is 21. Oh, That's how many they were able to actually confirm. But, I mean, most definitely there have to have been more. Mm -hmm. With him saying things like, and another thing is when this came out, um, Henry Lesser, people were like, no, this is so like, a lot of this must be sensationalized, but they've looked up a lot of these details. A lot of this stuff has been corroborated. It's just, and honestly, if they had released it when he first started trying to get it published, mm -hmm. they would have been able to find those, those details. But honestly, he doesn't seem like one of those uh, floofy killers. No, not at all. Very, very tough guy. Cut and dry. Nope. But yeah, that's my story for the day. Okay. 
So, what do you got for me, Brian? Okay. So, I don't think I, I have a, like a, a, a snazzy, snappy intro for this. Oh, not this week? <laughs> not this part. I don't well, know. This is part two of Harry Price. Yes. This is... This is... Did you like my intro for the podcast last week? When I was like, <laughs> oh, look, it's a magician who hates mediums. Wow. <laughs> Didn't we do this before? <laughs> uh, look, he doesn't hate mediums. Oh, he, yeah, he does. He just likes to... De- he's a debunker, okay? But anyway, <clears throat> so, like Brittany said, and like I said, this is a continuation to uh, my Harry Price episode last week, uh, and this was, is one of his cases, one of his, um, I guess, well-known cases? I'm not sure. Um, it's actually a, very, a pretty bizarre one. Uh, have you heard... Of a talking mongoose before. No. Or any other like talking animal outside of fiction. No. Hmm. Me either. Like is it like a real Mr. Ed thing? Huh? Yeah, just a little bit. So this is a story all about how a family on the island of men got twisted turned upside down. Um so this is a story of Jeff the Mongoose. Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Okay. It's uh it's uh it's uh yes, it's yeah, okay. Let me just get to it. So the story starts out in the autumn of nineteen thirty one on Owl Man. Uh it's in a farmhouse known as the Dorish Cashin. Um so in this home lives a 60-year-old man named Jim Irving, his wife Margaret, mm-hmm. and their daughter, almost 13-year-old uh, Voiry. Voiry? I think that's what I was saying. That's what I was going with. Yes, Voiry. Um, so Jim's taking a farmer. He used to be a, like a door-to-door salesman. He, he retired. Okay. He became a farmer. Didn't we just talk about the other day about how door-to-door salesman just, it just makes you feel, ugh. <laughs> I think it was, he was, he was a salesman. I'm not sure if it was a door-to-door salesman, but he was a salesman. Um, just don't trust you. What are you selling me? <laughs> me out of your trunk? I don't like it. Oh, yeah. You were talking about that last night. Yeah, something my biological yes. dad did when I was a kid. Oh, He also goodness. sold vacuums and he used me. To help sell them. Look, after that, after my experience with the freaking Kirby guys, Kirby vacuums. Oh. No, no. No, it's got to be Dyson. Dyson or Shark. I do like Shark. Sharks are a lot better, too. I have a Eureka one. Um, so, anyway. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. So, Jim is taking up, you know, farming. But, bad part about this is the farm is not doing well. Uh... They're really struggling. They have no electricity. They have no phone there. No radio. Like basically, no entertainment at this farmhouse. No. Just the three of them. And no wonder they were getting high and seeing this mongoose talk. <laughs> and their closest neighbor was about like a little over a mile away. So it's not really somewhere you can like walk to and just you know, hang out with your your neighbors. <clears throat> so a short time later. The family is, you know, they're in their house, you know, of course, because they have nowhere else to go. And they start hearing these animal type noises from, you know, within their walls. Like it's like a, a growling or like a, 
a snarling type of noise that's back there. And they think it's a rat. So over the next few days, the noises, you know, they keep going. They persist. And Jim's like, all right, I'm tired of this. So first he goes, he gets he gets a lot of things to try to get this, to flush this rat out. First he gets his gun, you know, he tries to shoot in there to get it to, to run away. Um, then he gets some rat poison uh to you know bait the the rat out of the the walls and this is the funniest part um another way he tried to get the rat out of the walls was that he tried to just bark and um growl like a dog that's kind of fun <laughs> i think they know though because they're really keen on smell mm-hmm. that's why they leave when like people buy like get cats yeah um but after, you know, he growled and barked, uh, this thing, it kind of growled back at him. So, after that, it started doing something a little bit more strange. Okay. Um, it started to do other animal noises. Ooh. And bird calls as well. Like, soon it got to the point where... I mean, some animals do do that. Yeah. But wouldn't you, they have needed to know the original call first? This is true. So, like, how does this random animal know these different calls? Hmm. Interesting. So, I'm, I'm on the right. I'm on the right path. It may be. Okay. Okay. So, it got to the point where Jim would just, like, name an animal or a bird in this creature would mimic the call perfectly no now we're in it's not real this didn't happen territory <laughs> of all the things that didn't happen this didn't happen the most <laughs> and then it, it like it it uh progressed even further to the to the point where it started making baby type noises like babbling or gurgling like a little baby behind you know, the walls and stuff like that. It was just, hmm, very weird, very weird. And then uh, later on down the line, the daughter, Voiri, uh, she she comes up with this great idea mm-hmm. that she's going to have this creature recite nursery rhymes with her. I don't like this. This <clears throat> is weird. So this went this went on, you know, without a hitch. The the you know, she would do nursery rhymes with the the thing in the walls and then, you know, it would do it back with her. And later on it started, you know, this the speech it, it became like a dependent like he he this thing learned actually how to talk. And it was, you know, just holding conversations and talking. I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like this. This uh, this seems like a story you tell years later at a family reunion. <laughs> the sisters are like, all the kids are like, yo, remember when we pretended there was a magical creature in the walls and it made sounds and it talked to us? And you're like, oh my God, I forgot that. We were so weird. We really That's did do what that. this sounds like. <laughs> It sounds like what you do. I had stuff like this with my cousins and my sister. Oh, interesting. Everybody does this. So that's what this sounds like. And that's what I'm holding on to right now, fam. Okay. 
Okay. So yeah, it has conversations. Uh, and it it sings. It um. Yeah, it sings and it, it laughs and it and it lives. Oh my god! It just or not lives. It's whatever. But um. So one day, this creature it tells the Irvings that. The noises that it was making in the beginning, like the growling noises behind the wall and stuff like that, was actually <clears throat> were, uh, were actually like intended as humorous inter- introductory leg pulling. So the thing behind the wall was trying to like make a funny joke to get them to like talk to it or something like oh. that. By growling and making noises, animal noises, get it? Isn't that funny? Isn't that like a joke that people do, a jokey joke? Okay, so here's my situation. (laughs) Yes. Now I'm looking at this and going, there's a motherfucking prowler inside of my house. (laughs) This is a grown ass human person talking to my children from within my home. That's that's where I'm thinking this is. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but that's what I'm thinking. Okay, okay. So it's not clear like in uh when I was reading Harry Price's book, mm-hmm. he he wrote that it wasn't clear if the the animal gave itself the name or if they the Irvings named it it's uh named it Jeff. But either way, its name is Jeff and it's spelled G E F. Cute. Yeah, yeah. Spoken like a person who only knows their letters. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Interesting, right? Yo, Brian, is this really <laughs> a child living up in these people's walls? I don't know. Um, so he introduces <laughs> he introduces himself as an extra clever mongoose. Uh, Jeff tells Jim that he, Jeff, was from India and was chased by natives. Um, apparently, one of the neighboring farmers actually brought mongoose or mongoose to whatever you want to pronounce the, the plural um to the island to control the the rabbit population there uh jim remember when i said in the beginning jim had like got the gun to try to shoot at jeff out of the walls and stuff like that um so jeff jeff brings that up in conversation one day he's like hey remember that one time you tried to kill me with your gun good times right and they kind of just like they just they just laugh it off it's just like a stupid little thing um so throughout this whole thing jim has not really gotten a full look at jeff yeah he's (laughs) he he's seen like bits of his like his tail like going around a corner or something like that or like something like running in his peripheral visions no no i don't like it i don't like it (laughs) oh so there are only like two people that actually kind of seen it vori she's definitely seen jeff like full on she like there there's even like harry price had written written that she didn't even try to take a picture of jeff with a camera but Jeff, like, he, he actually posed for it, but then when she was about to take it, he ran away. Um, and then Margaret, the wife, she's supposed to have seen Jeff as well. 
makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Jeff is described as being the same size as a small rat with yellowish fur, mm-hmm. a hedgehog-like snout, and a very bushy tail. Mm-hmm. So think of like yeah, a mongoose with or, or, or fur, a ferret. I said ferret, ferret, a Pokemon. <laughs> um, yes, a ferret like that. I'm just Brian. You don't know. You keep bringing me stuff. That's weird. What do you think I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> Not just weird, but also <laughs> improbable. <laughs> you know, I believe in ghosts. I believe in demons. I believe in the super scary versions of angels. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? They're terrible. I believe in all sorts of cryptids, especially the ones from my childhood stories my grandma told me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just. What's wrong with Jeff? What's wrong with Jeff? The mongoose from India. (laughs) This is what he looked like. This is a picture of him. It was like a long squirrel. It was like an otter slash squirrel type situation. Uh, that was a picture. Someone when drew does Harry him. Price show up <laughs> and scorch Earth? That's what I want to know. Oh, uh, so I just showed Brittany a picture of the. Someone drew a picture of a sketch of of Jeff, and under underneath the picture, there's a quote from Jeff, and it says, "That ain't me. Looks more like a llama." Oh, I hate you. This is cool. Oh, my God. This is lovely. I'm loving this. Okay. We torture each other in similar ways. (laughs) Yes. So, Jeff would actually, like, he'd leave the house and go about the town, hiding in the shadows. Of course. Why not? And behind bushes, you know. And he would probably make little cute comments. Oh yeah, he would. Don't de- don't talk to him, girl. <laughs> you know you too good for help. Oh my god! Don't buy them shoes, sir. They're purple. What you need purple shoes for? <laughs> you got an outfit that matches those. <laughs> Listen, if that was me, I would definitely hide in the trees in a park, and I'd see a girl, and she'd be talking about, "I don't think Tim likes me," and I'd be like, "You're right. He doesn't. You should move on." Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> you bring me out here. <laughs> hiding in the hiding in the park, just giving out advice. Oh my god! But no, Jeff would pick up gossip from the town and news from the town. Okay, and then like bring it. that back home and you know relay what what happened to you know the Irvings. Okay. Um. So whenever Jeff was tired of talking or like crazy, like just bored, he would shout out loud, he, like he would shout out, "Vanished." And then be gone. Oh, of course he would. Absolutely. He, he just would just say vanished and disappear. Uh, he was basically like a house cat that wandered out sometimes. Like, that's basically what Jeff was. And, 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 and he, of course, and talk too. <clears throat> so Jeff liked to sing. Like I said, uh, he, he upset Margaret uh, one day by singing a very very rude version of home on the range <laughs> i don't know what was said but she did not like it and then margaret goes jeff you are no animal and jeff goes of course i'm not i'm the holy ghost there you go oh my I god am no animal 
so I was reading this one article and Jeff is kind of portrayed as a poltergeist a little bit because he would throw things. Um, and this is the one line where we're talking about Jeff and when he'd be angry and it was like, like, like many a poltergeist or adolescent child or adolescent girl, um, Jeff had a short fuse that look he gave me. Yes. Think about that. Um, so he he would get mad at the family like everybody in the family they they'd feel Jeff's wrath um at one point Jim was like i guess opening the newspaper and Jeff goes read it out loud you fat-headed gnome and then he just had to deal with that because you can't really like attack a thing that you can't see right <laughs> Um, Vori, she was pretty much afraid of Jeff, uh, since the beginning. Um, one night when she was, you know, sleeping in her, in her parents' bedrooms, uh, her, her parents' bedroom, when she was, you know, afraid of the dark and she was trying to, like, stay away from Jeff, um, he goes, I'll follow her wherever you put her. And that's not something you want to hear from a disembodied voice that's living in your walls. Oh, my foot fell asleep. True, true, true. <laughs> I'll follow her wherever she is. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, um, Jeff was just not... He sometimes, sometimes he was a card, and then sometimes he was just an asshole. So, it's about this... It's around this time... Where Harry Price is contacted by the Irving family. Oh, thank God! <laughs> He's told the story, like they tell him the story, like of you know Jeff and this this you know how he all started and stuff. And Harry Price is like, "This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life." <laughs> He's like, "This is fucking ridiculous." Exactly. But we we like we do teach animals how to speak and you know no mimic, no we don't and we not teach, really like they mimic things like parrots and stuff like that only parrots like why couldn't we do that for like a mongoose so it's not like out of the realm of possibility for harry price <laughs> so he's like all right bet let me let, let's go check this out so he gets one of his colleagues uh i think i wrote captain x that's I'm, a cool name, fam. I'm pretty sure that's his name, Captain Captain X. That's cool. Um, like so he sends them to the Island of Man to get like a pre preliminary uh, scope of the place. So Jeff doesn't show himself at first, but when X goes to uh, you know leave for the day, he goes you know heads to the door. You can hear Jeff in the background. He's like, "Go away! Who is that man?" And <laughs> and then. And then Jim's like, that was Jeff. That was Jeff right there. And then X is like, okay, well, I can wait around for like a couple more minutes to see if he says anything else. And then nothing else happens. So X is like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm leaving for the day. Um, so the next day, X goes and Jeff has relayed a message to, to X. And, and Jim is saying this to X. And... X was told that 
Wait, no, no. God damn, I skipped ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, X was told that uh, Jeff didn't care very much about, care very much for X. Okay. So he's like, I just don't like you. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No ghost ever likes the person coming into the place. That's this is true. Normal. So starts the game of cat and mouse mm. with X and Jeff. Don't you mean of mongoose and person? <laughs> sure. Mongoose and snake. Mm-hmm. Oh. So Jim Jim goes to X and he's like, hey, if you really want Jeff to come out and like talk to you, all you have to do is like shout, Jeff, I do believe in you. Oh God. <laughs> and he will speak to you. Oh, I just wanna this is such a this is such a like a peewee's playhouse kind of thing. Yes. I believe in magic. <laughs> oh my god. So this kind of worked because um I guess whenever Jeff was talking to the other family members and like X overheard him and he's like, Jeff, I do believe in you. Why are you not coming out to me? Is what X says. And then um Jeff was Jeff <laughs> he's he's like I'm kind of tired today. Plus, I also don't care for you, so bye. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Even better if they go, bye, which is what I do on the phone. Oh, my God. So after that, nothing else came of this investigation at this time. So X just, you know, he left and went back to London. Okay. So... Later on, Jim asked Jeff, he's like, would you like for X to come back and like to talk to him? He's like, you know what? Yeah, he can come back, but not Harry Price. He's got oh. he's got his doubter cap on. Wow. Yeah. Um. So remember I said that Jeff took trips to town? Yes. And he'd come back with gossip. Mm-hmm. Um. So that gossip actually turned out to be true. So it's not, not like made up mongoose gossip. Oh, I'm here for the tea. <laughs> it's not like there wasn't really much information about the gossip, but oh, after yeah. that, he became clairvoyant for some, somehow he became clairvoyant and he started telling Jim about things that were going on about like, a, like 10 miles away from their house. Okay. So... Jeff was questioned if he was a spirit, and Jeff goes, "Absolutely, baby." <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what? I'm surprised he didn't say that. But <laughs> I do make it do what it do. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, "I am an earthbound spirit." <laughs> so, I don't like that. That makes me think of earthbound. Yeah, earthbound is also a game. Okay. So the Irvings and Jeff. They send X some of Jeff's hair. So okay. X That's is like freaky deaky. Yeah. So X is like, all right, bet. Let me get this sampled so I can see if you're actually a mongoose or not. Um, so they get it identified, and it's not from a mongoose. Imagine that. Um, is it from a person? No. Oh. It's from an. It is from an animal. It's from like a canine, though. Okay. Um. Harry Price, you know, has been like, all right, so we're getting all this stuff from Jeff, and I kind of want to check him out now. I kind of want to go to see Jeff. So 
he writes a letter to Jim, and he's like, mm-hmm. "All right, hey, th- I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to come out so I can meet Jeff." Jim's like, <laughs> "Jim's like, oh, awesome, okay, yeah, we'd love to have you out here." And then he gets a letter back saying, "Oh, by the way, Jeff has kind of like disappeared. Like he hasn't been around for like a couple of days. Um, we're not sure when he'll come back." Mm-hmm. And you know, this is this is normal for Jeff though because Jeff usually like takes trips to the town and he, you know he goes oh, away no, he for got a little eight. bit. <laughs> oh no! Um, oh. So Harry Price is like, I'm still coming anyway, so it's fine. Like, I can still talk to you guys and okay. investigate like that. There you go. <laughs> and actually, for the rest of the story. Jeff does not come back. Um, what? No, nah, spoiler alert. He doesn't come back. Um, what? So, when Harry Price gets there, though, he... So, he doesn't say it up front in the book, but the the Irvings, they have a collie dog, and the hairs that were identif- that were taken from Jeff were thought to have come from some type of dog, like a collie dog or something like a little sheep sheep dog or something like that. Okay. Um. So they're like, so that's like just a little hint that, huh? Maybe maybe Jeff isn't real, but I'm not gonna you know outright say that to you guys Ooh. right now. Mm-hmm. Got you, got you. Um. So yeah, like Harry Price is there. He's just you know they're talking about they they keep going over the story about Jeff and you know how he's appeared and all this stuff like that. And then you know he interviews people and they talk about Jeff and all this stuff and blah blah blah. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. But Jeff never appears. Aww. Jeff, like he Harry Price even calls out to Jeff. He's like, "Hey, buddy, I'm here to talk to you." Like. I'm here to believe. Can you like come out so we can have this conversation? Oh. Blah blah blah. So at this time, at this at this point in history or, or time, whatever, um, the Irving's daughter, she's 17 now. Oh. So back when Jeff started, you know, coming around, she was about 12, 13. So just little 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 thing to to remember. Um so People believe that maybe um, their daughter had something to do with Jeff. Of course. Maybe this Jeff was created from the mind of a bored little 12, 13 year old girl. You know, she lives in a uh, farmhouse, nowhere to go, nothing to do, no entertainment at all. So she comes up with this imaginary friend, this talking mongoose that Mm -hmm. lives in her walls. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, is just a very sassy creature. And I think that's like the most, um, what would you say? Like, that's like the most ex- explainable thing. Like, that's the only thing I can think of. Like, she, I'm not going to say. Everything about it sounds juvenile. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say she made it up because they don't really know. But, like, it's it's just very, very. She made it up. Yes. So, this wasn't the first 
book that Harry Price put uh, Jeff the Mongoose in. There was actually like a little a short shorter oh, so he's book. He's talked about this one multiple times. This is like the second time he's talked about why. Well, for this one, the, the book that I read was the, um, the Confessions of a Ghost Hunter. Mm. So he had all his like most of his cases were so in there. So he thought this was ghostly at first. A lot of people did because... Or they think it was demonic because it was probably lying to her. Just probably ghostly or like a poltergeist because he would throw things and, you know, interact with a oh, lot of stuff, too. Okay. Um, But, yeah, no, he, he wrote another book at first. And after that one got published... Oh, this was called. It's called A Haunting of Cashin's Gap. Oh, okay. A Modern Miracle. Um, so yeah, it was like, it was a small book. Just, it was just about this case. And after this wow. got published, yeah. Um, after this got, cap, uh, after this got published, the Irvings, they left Cashin's Cash Gap and they went to the mainland. Okay. Um, Jeff did not follow them because he was basically gone because I don't know, maybe a 17 year old girl grew up and got rid of her imaginary friend. Right. Um, and there's a new owner. His name is Mr. Graham. Yes. And Jeff did not introduce himself to Mr. Graham. Ever. Ever. So, but in 1947, <clears throat> Mr. Graham did trap and kill a strange looking animal that seemed to be neither ferret nor weasel. Oh. It. <laughs> he murdered it. It, it, he, oh, uh, come on, tell me he took a picture of something. No, he didn't. Um, it, he did say it answers to all descriptions of Jeff. Um, so eventually, Graham, uh, Mr. Graham, he left this house as well. And then the farmhouse was just tore down. And in 1970, a reporter from fate magazine uh they tracked down Vori and they interview her about the strange you know about jeff and she was like yes there was a little animal who talked and did all those other things and he said he was a mongoose and we should call him jeff but i do not wish but I do wish he had let us alone. Oh. And that is what I got for Jeff the Mongoose and Harry Price. Very interesting, honestly. It's when I first heard about it, I was like, this is I like the I like the sassiness from the mongoose. Of just like the stupid little creature. But I know it's fake. Like, I just don't know how she was doing it. And you know, it's funny. They had, they even had like a little box or like a little uh, room for Jeff so that he could go sit in. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just silly. So I don't know if the parent, like, like I said, I don't know if she had just made it up and the parents were just going along with it and like, oh yeah, you're imagining, I mean, your friend Jeff, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. And you know how parents are. <laughs> I would definitely do that. I actually have done that because, oh, yeah, yeah. The boy that's sitting on top of the stairs doesn't want me to walk up there. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, 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 ha. 
Ugh. <laughs> that one's a little different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <coughs> That's a joke, though. They haven't seen any kids yet in the house. They saw something. Okay, they saw something. A bat type thing. Anyway. That was just Cass. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that was our podcast for the day. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. I Listen, we've had a good time today. It's <laughs> been weird. And that's the best time. Yeah. <laughs> Before you go, I just want to invite everybody listening to our Patreon. Like I said, it's just a special place for us. Like I said, we haven't thought of a fun name for the people who join. But one of our uh, special patrons got to sign up to the Discord and get her special name tag. Yes. And we were very excited. We were like, yay, someone <laughs> who signed up actually wants to hang out with us. <laughs> it's all fun. But that can be you too. And it's going to be one of those situations where people who are on the Patreon are going to get access to things ahead of other people. There's situations where Brian and I might in the future want to do like a live podcast event or things of that nature if you're a member of the patreon you would get access to those sort of tickets even if they're just digital tickets before everybody else does so it's definitely fun you get an extra podcast every week where you hear us argue about conspiracy theories because you know i don't like them (laughs) and other fun stuff too Uh, there's also layers where you can get discounts for merchandise depending on what tier you are of the patreon and of course if you are in the top tier you get a private conversation with brian and i on the discord as well as what 20 percent off of your merch every month oh yeah so all benefits all awesome and thank you so much for listening and thank you to our patrons for always being here yeah bye guys